starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Good morning. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God Almighty, you present yourself in Scripture today as El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty. I pray that we can understand you better through that name and put more faith in you as the all-sufficient God. So Lord, I just ask that you edit my words uh, to those here today to glorify you and your greatness. Uh, so we thank you and we praise you through your promised son, Christ. Amen. So my name is Jake, as Dan said, and I am thankful for this opportunity to be up here today as we go through this series on the names of God. So to start, I want to relay through some personal stories, and I'm sure you can relate uh, that once you get to a certain age, you begin and you say uh, to have that attitude that you can do it all by yourself. And I begin to hear that from my four boys more and more. I can do it, Mom. I can do it, Dad. Let me use the sharp knife this time. Let me cut my brother's hair. Uh, Dad, let me drive the car home today. I mean, come on. My oldest is only six years old. So, but the older you get and the more knowledge you gain, you do figure yourself to be more self-sufficient and independent. We can do those things and a whole host of other stuff. But if we take that out a bit further, we can quickly see <clears throat> that there's a lot of things that we can't do for ourselves. So let's take a, a look at some of these things. Can you make yourself taller? No. Can you make yourself well if you are sick? No. If you're dying, can you make yourself live? No. Can you fly? No, can't. Uh, there's a lot of things that none of us as humans can do for ourselves. And in that same vein of thought, without trusting in God and his promise, we can sink ourselves into thinking that we are the ones who have to go out and accomplish everything. That we're the sole directors of our future and that everything hinges on what we can do and how well we can do it. God somehow needs our help or else we're doomed, which leads to anxiety and depression and fear and failure and more. And I was stuck there for a year more when I got out of college. That summer I signed a professional hockey contract that took me to Fort Wayne, Indiana, beautiful place. Uh, my season in Fort Wayne was fantastic when looking back at it, but during that year, my wife can verify this, I was completely riddled with anxiety. Anxiety of being put on waivers, 
uh, which is also known as being released from a team in professional sports or being cut from a team. And in the minor leagues, contracts can be terminated any day of the week, uh, any day. And in Fort Wayne, the telltale sign that someone was going to be put on waivers was the trainer coming in and telling a player that the coach wanted to see him. Everybody knew what that meant. So I feared the trainer. I did not want him to approach me. It gave me anxiety. And even during the games, I analyzed everything the coach said to me. Was that good? Was that bad? Should I just leave my bags packed at home uh, so I can move? Uh, I thought if I lost my job playing hockey that I would be uh, nobody. And it got to be absurd. I was not trusting in God's sovereignty on my life. Uh, I had no plan B either. Anxiety prevented me from making relationships, from enjoying my time in the moment and getting the full experience of being in a new city and meeting new people. I wasn't trusting God. I was trusting in myself and on every level and analyzing every tiny little detail that was going around me to see if it would affect me. It sucked the life out of me. And my first year of my career taught me a ridiculous amount of lessons. So I am sure that you have been or are in similar situations. It could be an employer who is reducing its employees. Or maybe they're going in a different direction and your skill set is not of value to them. Or maybe a diagnosis came back and you immediately think about what you could have done to prevent it or what you can do to remedy it yourself. Maybe your kids have gone astray or your marriage is faltering on some level and anxiety comes into your heart and you go anywhere to find the answers except God's sovereignty to figure out why. Why do we do that? And today, I want us to understand that God is bigger than our situations. He's intricately involved in the smallest details of our life with purpose. And I want us to trust that he is good and loves us who have faith in him. And this is what we are going to see today with God and Abraham. Understanding that what he promises, he will fulfill and he will sustain us with his power, not ours. I also want us to be thankful that God is in control, okay? He is sovereign. It's good for us to know that the world isn't going to spin out of control. It's not governed by some alignment of stars or luck or chance or fate or an election, and neither is God. Even though we might find it difficult to understand this sometimes, when our situation changes and perhaps we think, why is this happening it's good and it's healthy to know that God is at the helm. And he's working everything out according to the counsel of his will. And when we don't always understand that, which that'll happen, it's where he calls us to trust and obey and to follow his commands and stay close to him and to his word as he's a mighty covenantal God who fulfills his promises. And most importantly, these things remind us from a biblical standpoint and very specifically a spiritual standpoint that there's nothing we can do for ourselves. And that's why the Bible teaches it from beginning to the end that salvation, the spirit, that new life, 
that effectual grace that gives us life is from the Lord and him alone. I hope that's the word that we can glean today from God as he presents himself to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And in chapter 17, God introduces us to a new name for himself, El Shaddai. A name that will remind us that we cannot accomplish God's purposes in our lives, physically and very specifically spiritually. God must be the one who does those things. He is El Shaddai. He is the Almighty. I mean, we use means, right? I mean, we can exercise and eat to help us grow. We can take medicine and have surgery to make us better and help prolong our lives. Or we can use, uh, we can sit under uh, preaching and pray and engage in Bible studies because God has ordained those means. Or we could see uh, a professional and get our minds thinking correctly. But we must do so fully aware that everything that happens in our lives especially spiritually, is of God's almighty power. So as we venture into the text, we first want to have an idea of how God shows himself to Abram. And he demonstrates it by way of a new name. In chapter 17, verse 1, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now this new name that God introduces us to is in the Hebrew El Shaddai. It usually appears in our English Bibles as God Almighty or Almighty God. And El Shaddai does have a bit of controversy on the direct meaning of it. There's most likely two possible meanings. First one is this, that Shaddai points to the omnipotence of God, particularly where the translation comes in as Almighty in our Bible. The second is the all-sufficient one, the one who is able to do and accomplish who can nourish, supply, and satisfy. So if we link those together, it's the almighty, powerful one who nourishes, supplies, and satisfies. That's a long name. So a couple of other trustworthy men have dissected it like this. Louis Burkhoff says that the name uh, Shaddai is derived from Shaddad, which is to be powerful, and points to God as possessing all power in heaven and earth. Others, however, derive it from Shad or Lord, and it differs in an, important, in an important point from Elohim or creator God, as we saw Pat discuss last week, and that it contemplates God as subjecting all the powers of nature and making them subservient to the work of divine grace. While it stresses the greatness of God, it does not represent him as an object of fear and terror, but as one who is a source of blessing and comfort. Another guy, Herman Bavink, adds that El Shaddai is the God who gives himself to his people and his invincible power is for them the guarantee of the fulfillment of his covenant promises. Okay, it's used 41 times in the Old Testament. 29 of those alone are just in the book of Job. But first we see it here with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And that's why I want to pick up this morning where God presents himself to Abraham for the first time as El Shaddai or God Almighty. So, verse 1 and 2 of Genesis 17, again, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. 
Now, to understand what's going on here, we need to give this covenant calling some context. We need to know why God would call himself El Shaddai, the almighty, the all-sufficient to a nearly 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife. We also need to know what covenant means and how it's applied and what to do with it. So this whole line of thinking is encompassed in what Christianity calls the Abrahamic covenant. And it starts back in Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to jump there, uh, verses 1 through 3, where God appears to Abraham 25 years earlier. He was 75 years old, and the Lord appeared to him and said to him this. He said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in, all, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God starts by calling out a people, namely Abram. Not yet Abraham, it's just Abram. Uh, he calls him unto himself and foreshadows a great name and a great nation in which people of the earth will find blessing. And this we will see have its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. God here is extending grace to Abram, and he is a complete pagan. Okay? Abram and his family resided in a pagan land called Ur. He most likely worshipped the moon and the moon god named Sine. So the country, place, and family all here were pagan. I say this so we can see a really important piece of information. That God did not call Abram because he was righteous or for anything he did or have, but because he sovereignly chose Abram by his good purpose and wanted to go into covenant with him. So Abraham was already advanced in age. He was 75 years old. His wife Sarah was 65 years old, but they left everything to go, not knowing where they would go. Hebrews chapter 11 sums it up like this in verse 8. It says this, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents. Goes on to say that, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham listened to God and went. Faith was instrumental here. But as we see, the years passed. Abraham was out there. He started a new life. He became wealthy. He had almost everything he wanted in the world except a child, an heir to his fortune and his promise from God. As Sarah, his wife, was barren. She always has been her whole life. And that's when this story picks back up as God comes to Abram and institutes what we see a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 15. So paraphrasing here, in verse 1 of chapter 15, the Lord comes to Abram and says that he is going to be rewarded greatly. But Abram replies in verse 3 here, he says, What will you give me? I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Now, Eliezer is just a, a worker for Abraham. We could see him as the chief steward of his household. 
And you can see the tension in Abraham, almost doubting God, knowing that's impossible to have a child with Sarah as she is unable to. Afraid that all he has done and has will be passed to someone who's not even related to him. Where is God on this one? Right? Do you ever say that when things start to get shaky? But we see in verse 4, God says to stop worrying about that. He says, I am going to give you an heir so that Eliezer will not be your heir, but your very own son will be his heir. And God shows his promise to Abram and makes a covenant with Abram on that promise that his offspring will be as many as there are stars in the sky. So we heard this word covenant a few times now. I think it's worthwhile to break down what it means as it's used uh, a crazy amount of times in Scripture. And with the new name El Shaddai, the mighty, all-sufficient, covenant-fulfilling God, we should take note of how it works. So this type of covenant that was made, it's not something new or mysterious in the Old Testament. It was common between kings and rulers and nations. It's something that Abram would understand and already be familiar with. So these treaties or covenants could be drawn up among nations to honor each other's boundaries or to maintain trade relations or to even return runaway slaves. And these covenants had conditions for each side to fulfill. But mostly we see in the Bible covenants or treaties that were made between a superior and an inferior or a greater king and a lesser king as we see here with Abram. The greater king is the power. Okay, he will stipulate what will happen unconditionally with the lesser king. And the lesser king, who is a representative of the common people, is in service of that greater king. And we can see Abram has, as that lesser king, representative of his offspring or future offspring, and is protected by his superior in this God. So from there, a number of ratifying or enactment ceremonies were used in covenant making, but the most widely used rite was that of literally just cutting bodies of animals in half and then placing them in two rows with enough width for both parties to walk through those dead bodies. And this is how God enacted that covenant with Abram in Genesis 15. And as they're, walk, as they're to walk between those, pla- those dead animals on each side, they were vowing to each other, saying that if I break my covenant, then let what happened to these animals happen to me. Okay, so in essence, uh, the literal translation is just they're cutting a covenant together. So uh, if we fast forward, imagine if we did that with marriage vows today. This church would get pretty smelly. I'm sure the divorce rate would lower and the widow rate might rise up a bit there. Uh, But in Genesis 15, this covenant was put in place by God and God alone, the conqueror, the greater king, we can see that the animals were cut in half and ready to be walked through. But it isn't Abraham and God that passes through calling upon themselves destruction if they break the covenant. God wouldn't let Abraham do it. It was only God who passed through, saying, let me be destroyed if I don't keep my covenant. It reads like this in chapter 15, verse 17. It says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring I give this land. 
And I think that's a pivotal place to stop and understand the God who we are dealing with here. God is a promise keeper. He is El Shaddai. He is unchangeable. He doesn't need to swear by anyone except for himself. Swearing by himself is that ultimate oath. As scripture assures, God's not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. And our faith, that can struggle. And we can say, is God really going to come through on his promise or am I going to have to take the reins? And Christians, we can come back to Genesis 15, verse 17. Know that there is no higher testimony that God can swear by. And we can see this acted out in that covenant with Abram. We know that it's not based on some condition that he sees in Abram, but based on the will of God. He makes the conditions. He is the sovereign. He will choose this to happen, and he will give the power to Abram to make it happen. It is an unconditional covenant here in Genesis 15 that states that Abram will have a son, and he'll have a place and a land to bless his people. And Abraham's response to God is critical, as the word says in Genesis 15, verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So he's not considered righteous by any of his works. He's considered righteous by faith. This is the correct answer. God didn't count him righteous through his sinful flesh, but by his belief and that alone. We see, though, that even after he institutes this covenant, he lets quite a bit of time slide by. And Abram and Sarah start to panic a bit. It's been almost 12 years since the original promise in Genesis 12, where God came to Abraham and said he'd have offspring. And anxiety and stress start to rear their ugly heads, and they give into their flesh. Sarah says to Abraham to take her servant, Hagar, and make a child, probably thinking, hey, we need to cooperate with God to make this promise come to pass. So they conceive, and they have Ishmael. And we don't see another interaction with God and Abram until 13 long years later in chapter 17, verse 1, where we opened up today. And you know, in some ways, I don't blame Sarah. We get anxious and impatient and strive to work things out in our own timing. But we need to go back to God's promises and character. We need that bucket of water in the face that wakes us up and reminds us that God's a promise keeper. He's a covenant fulfiller, a sovereign king. And God gives that to Abraham here in in chapter 17, verse 1. God lights into Abraham a bit here, calling himself that new name saying to Abraham that he's not some impotent God, but he is God Almighty, El Shaddai, the sufficient one, the promise fulfiller. God even gives Abram a new name in verse 5, calling him Abraham to make a dramatic point, saying that he will be a father of a multitude of nations, which is what Abraham means. And God also speaks of Abram's disobedience with having Ishmael. He said, no, this is not the child of promise. This kid's going to come from your wife. You can't do this yourself. And I'm fully convinced that this is why he used people this old. To show that it is only God's doing. Just like salvation. It's only from the Lord. 
And Abraham and Sarah kind of laugh in astonishment. They're befuddled, but they trust. God also says to Abram in verse 1 to walk before him and be blameless. Which is essentially saying, take me at my word. Stand in my promises. Don't try to take things into your own hand. It's not necessarily saying to be perfect, although it is foreshadowing someone who will be perfect. But he is saying to get his heart right, posture himself to the Lord, repent, because the Lord God Almighty, El Shaddai, is working in you. So we have to ask, and I'm sure Abraham's thinking, why would God wait till he's so old? And the answer is because it shows that this power is vested in God alone. Abraham can't work at it. It's not his doing. Abraham and Sarah are totally incapable, apart from the supernatural intervention of God himself. God is sufficient and mighty, not them. And sure enough, a year later, at just think of this, uh, at 90 years old, Sarah gives birth to the miracle child, Isaac, conceived only by the power of God Almighty, El Shaddai. The promise of God to Abraham of having an offspring is fulfilled in Isaac, the son of promise. God is El Shaddai here. He is sufficient with all the power to fulfill all his promises. And we need to trust that. Because if we don't, we will head down a very, very dangerous road. When we think that God can go back on his promises or that he can change his character even a little bit, that opens up a huge can of worms. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, lays out a great argument for those implications of understanding why trusting God's character and promises and how they will not let you down is so vital to our faith. And he goes on to say this, that if God could change, then any change would either be for the better or for the worse. But if God changed for the better, then he was not the best possible being when we first trusted him. And how can we be sure that he's the best possible being now? But if God could change for the worse, then what kind of God might he become? Might he become, for instance, a little bit evil rather than wholly good? And if he become a little bit evil, then how do we know he not changed to become largely evil or wholly evil? And there would not be one thing we could do about it, for he's so much more powerful than we are. Thus, the idea that God could change leads to the horrible possibility that thousands of years from now, we might come to live forever in a universe dominated by a holy, evil, omnipotent God. It's hard to imagine any thought more terrifying. How could we ever trust a God who could change? How could we ever commit our lives to him? Moreover, if God can change with regard to his purposes, then even though the Bible was written, he promised that Jesus would come back to rule over a new heaven, a new earth. He has perhaps abandoned that plan now. And thus our hope in Jesus' return is in vain. Or if God could change in regard to his promises, then how can we trust him completely for eternal life? Or anything else the Bible says. Maybe when the Bible was written, he promised forgiveness of sins and eternal life to those who trust in Christ. But if God can change, perhaps he has changed his mind on those promises now. How can we be sure? Or perhaps his omnipotence will change someday. So that even if he wants to keep his promises, 
he will no longer be able to do so. And a little reflection like this shows how absolutely important the doctrine of God's unchangeableness is. If God is not unchanging, then the whole basis of our faith just begins to fall apart. And our understanding of the universe just becomes unraveled. This is because our faith and hope and knowledge all ultimately depend on a person who is infinitely worthy of trust. Because he is absolutely and eternally unchanging in his perfections, his character, his purposes, and his promises. And this is where we have to look at that big picture of the Bible on God's promises and covenants and trust in his almighty power and how he comes through. And that is seen in no better way than in the person of Jesus Christ. So back in Genesis 12, we read about the promise of an offspring and how through Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And later in chapter 17, we see God telling Abram, that he's going to be the father of a multitude of nations. And kings will come from him. And this covenant is going to be an everlasting covenant with his offspring. So we know that God opened Sarah's womb to have Isaac as a start of this fulfillment of the covenant. But when tracing that storyline of the Bible, we see that God Almighty, El Shaddai, fulfills this covenant ultimately in Christ. And we are heirs to that promise the same way that Abraham was an heir to that covenant promise. It is by faith. We can look at that genealogy of Christ uh, starting from Adam, the first. We can trace that to Christ going right through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, David, and so forth. It's right there at the beginning of the book of Matthew. We have to look at Christ if we're to have any hope in these promises because that is what they point to. Abraham is over 100 years old with his son Isaac. He knew he wasn't going to see that multitude of the nations and the blessing that poured out of them. He put his faith in a God who promised and believed in him. Christ is that long view fulfillment of the promise. He is the God to his people, his covenant children. And we are brought into this family by faith that is given to us by our almighty God. Galatians, in chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, says this. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, just let me read that to you again one time here, because I think most of us are going to fall into that category of the Gentiles. It says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, us, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, 
in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And a couple of verses later in Galatians 3, 16, we see again, as it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. It is faith in the promised blessing, Christ, who makes Abraham's family innumerable, and a blessing to the earth by becoming the righteous, blameless, sacrificial seed in whom many are called into the kingdom. We who are of faith in Christ are Abraham's children. Children of the promise who are blessed through Abraham's offspring, Christ. For one cannot really appreciate that and understand and comprehend and be a recipient of the all-sufficient blessings and resources of God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. God accomplished this through being El Shaddai, the almighty covenant keeper. Now there's a lot of times that our faith will grow weak like Abraham and Sarah's. We begin to wonder if God is going to come through on his promise. Is he really going to do it? Maybe it's been a long time and right now you might think you're in the middle of a desert. It's dry and it's barren and it seems like God just is not doing a thing. That's where Abraham and Sarah were probably at. Wondering, God, are you really going to come through? A 25 years is a long time. Like that's a crazy long time. And they're waiting somewhere in the middle trying to figure out on their own, trying to help God, figuring out this is not God's plan, it's not what he wanted. And yet we can see that God supplies what he promises. And we can know that when God lays out a promise, he will supply. When God promises to meet us, he will supply. When he promises peace, he will supply. And when he makes a promise, God Almighty, El Shaddai, will come through. But we need to know, Christians, that this coming through, his answers, his peace, is given to us in our faith. And this, I want you to listen to, is very important here. God might leave us in our prayers for years, wanting us to stay there to work on trusting him and his almighty name. He did that to me when I was in Fort Wayne, riddled with anxiety. I had to pray continually to remind myself that God was sovereign and he's in control of every detail. I had to trust God, even if that meant that I was going to be put on waivers or released and cut. And to think Abraham was left with a much more limited interaction with God and his promises. And although he wavered from times here and there, he had faith. It was counted to him as righteousness. And how much more of a clear picture do we have with Christ in the scriptures? The son of God, the offspring of Abraham, in which Abraham based his faith. The one who took our sins upon his shoulders. Who took the wrath that was due for us for our disobedience and exchange it with us 
for his perfect righteousness that works faith in us? How much more should we feel at ease when he might not be coming around on his promise to know the whole story, that he has come and conquered and has set us on a foundation that does not fail? We don't have to be in a desert. We can interact in his word, in the pages of scripture, and have El Shaddai revealed to us in that fulfillment of Christ. So that job, or that diagnosis, the marriage, kids, God's word tells us in Philippians 2.13 that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that we can know in hardships, later on in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, it says to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And now we see a promise here. It says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we know that even as we started out thinking we might know best, thinking that we know the way ourselves, that it is God who works everything according to the counsel of his good and perfect will. To work in us and through us, to mold us, to grow us, to heal us, and to give us new life. Nothing that we can do ourselves. Holy a work of the Lord Almighty El Shaddai. Amen? Let's pray. Lord El Shaddai, you and you alone are worthy of praise. You fulfill your promises. You fulfilled your promise to Abraham and ultimately fulfilled that blessing to us in Abraham's offspring, Christ The promise of a blessing of one who came and lived a perfect life, who took our sin and was crucified on the cross, absorbing your wrath that was due to us, paying the penalty of our sin, making us right with you, working faith in us and bringing us into relationship. So Lord, I pray to help us understand you more as the promise fulfiller, the almighty, the all-sufficient El Shaddai. We love you and we praise you. Amen.